You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Hey, hey, today we are answering a few questions from some of our college student listeners. I'm looking forward to those. And we're going to be digging into the latest research about sexual pain and getting some advice on how to communicate our needs and improve our sex lives from Dr. Shamika Thorpe. And I'm such a fan of her work. So yeah, I'm really excited for this one. And I'm also really thrilled to announce a new partnership that we've just formed with a platform that I've been following and recommending and using personally for quite some time. They're called Femtasy. So Femtasy is an audio-only streaming service with short erotic stories. And because my seduction style is audio, I love this concept, right? No videos, no photos, just narrated fantasies geared at women, but I think folks of all genders will actually be drawn in. And femtasy, I should tell you how to spell it because it's a, a mishmash word. So it's spelled F-E-M, like fem like fantasy. So F-E-M-T-A-S-Y. It's designed to be a safe space. So the stories are all ethically produced with their voice actors. They have over 500 short stories that for me are way more likely to get me in the mood than visual depictions. So, and this is great timing because we're coming up on Masturbation May and they've actually dropped their prices really significantly to celebrate. So full access is just 99 cents a month or 9.99 for the year. So if you do want to explore your fantasies or learn more about how to even figure out what your fantasies are, because so many people say they don't have fantasies, I think Femtasy is a great place to start. It's just... One way to take time out for yourself and escape reality. And I've been listening to their audio for a while now. And I'm actually going to see if I can play a sample in one of our upcoming episodes because I think it'll give you a taste for it. But in the meantime, you can head over to their site and listen to some samples for free so you can see if it's a great fit for you at femtasy.com, F-E-M-T-A-S-Y.com. And I was thinking, babe, I love the sound of your voice, right? So I have my favorites on the platform. But would you like? Would you be a voice actor? Because I saw an ad that they were hiring. Would you do that? Would you yeah, read I fantasies? Would, I would totally do that. I've got the face <laughs> for radio. <laughs> but no, I, seriously, that would be kind of fun. Well, I was thinking that you might send me the video, or sorry, the the clips that you're listening to, if you were comfortable, because then I would know what you're thinking about and know what you like, and then I could perhaps role play later on. I like I like the sound of that. You, <laughs> I like the sound of your voice right know. now. <laughs> I'm trying to be sexy right now. Well, you could go audition to be a voice actor too for Femtasy. Okay. I feel like you're patronizing me. I now. think I think I am. Yes. <laughs> well, we're gonna have that conversation offline. All right, we've got to get to some of our questions from our college listeners, and some of them are a bit long, but let's dive right in. This first person asks. What is the difference between bisexuality and pansexuality? I've seen it explained that bisexual is attraction to multiple genders and pan pansexual is attraction to all genders, but it just feels like an odd explanation. If I'm attracted to both feminine and masculine energy and physical attributes that are associated with male and female anatomy, regardless of what the person identifies as, then wouldn't bisexual and pansexual both be the correct label? And they go on to say... Everyone is somewhere on a scale of masculine, feminine, neither, both, fluid, so shouldn't bisexuality cover that? 
I've also seen that the term pansexual is an outdated term, and even folks who will say that it's transphobic because it implies bisexuality is only attraction to cisgender people, which I see how, you know, that could be transphobic since trans women are women and trans men are men. They are not in a separate attraction category. And then they say, sorry for how long and confusing this question is. Thank you for taking the time to answer. <laughs> I just think that university and college students today are a whole lot smarter than I was. <laughs> this wasn't really on your radar, right? No, not at all. So I actually studied... I just studied... wanted somebody to, to have sex with me. <laughs> that <laughs> Anybody. Was, that was what was on my radar. I, anything. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I, I studied sexual diversity studies in school. That was my undergrad degree. I think that was my major. So we were talking about this stuff all the time and kind of debating. And I think that my first piece of, you know, my answer would be that you're not going to get a universal consensus. You know, bisexuality used to refer to being attracted to men and women. But as we know, gender isn't binary. And some people don't identify as man or woman. Um, but bisexuality for some people has been updated to refer to being attracted to multiple genders. And then it still receives some criticism for the inclusion of bi, right? So bi refers to the number two, uh, and so some people don't like that term because it suggests that there's just two genders. And, you know, other people really like the term bisexual because it gives credence and pays tribute to bisexual activists who came before us and used it in more inclusive ways. So pansexuality tends to refer to attraction to all genders. And again, there's going to be people who disagree with me. Um, a pansexual person is someone who can feel attraction to anyone regardless of their sex assigned at birth, regardless of their gender, sexual, or gender identity. And so pansexuals would say, you know, we feel attraction to androgynous, agender, bigender, cisgender, intersex, folks who identify as gender neutral, gender fluid, and trans people. And so basically gender and sex aren't determining factors in whether a pansexual person feels sexually attracted to someone. For me, this would probably be the most um, appropriate label. And you won't hear me use these labels all the time. I think when I was younger, I used bi a little bit, but now I just use queer because it feels just more inclusive for me. So to go back to your question, I would say sometimes the terms are used interchangeably. Some people will argue with me that that's not okay. So I think it's just important that we recognize that language is fluid and subjective and be mindful of, you know, how language is used to empower, how language is used to oppress. Like when I was in university, every time I used queer in an essay, I was encouraged to kind of put a footnote explaining why I was using the word queer, why that was part of reclaiming. You know, fast forward 20 years now, and I don't think I have to do that as much. I don't think that, at least for me and my experience in my circle in the world I live in, queer isn't as much of a pejorative, so I don't have to explain it every time. So that's my best <laughs> answer to that question, and I hope you find that useful, and I hope that you find language that works for you. Okay, another question from a college student. This one's from Canada, actually. This person says, I've recently started talking to someone with a high amount of kills, and I find it to be a deal breaker. I mean, it isn't in the three digits yet, but it's close, and I was just wondering how many kills is considered high. I always told myself that is that it is preferable to be with someone who has slept with fewer than 10 to 15 partners maximum, or the number must be lower than your age, 
and they ask, is it just me who thinks like that? So when we say kills, we mean, I guess, number of sexual partners. I've never heard it referred to as kills before. Oh, okay. So either I'm really old or I'm not paying attention to what the kids are saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think for this person, I don't think you're alone. I think many people are concerned about how many partners someone had in the past in that it's natural to be curious. But just because it's common and we're culturally concerned about it doesn't necessarily mean that it's helpful. So what I would encourage you to do is think about why it matters to you, right? Is it is it triggering an insecurity? Do you worry that you won't be enough? Do you worry that you won't measure up? Do you worry that they'll want to move on from you because they've had so many and they like variety? Or are you feeling judgmental? Does a high number of partners not align with the dominant values you've been taught about sex? And I really recommend that you assess and consider how some of these values that you hold, how they intersect with privilege, your own privilege perhaps, and components of identity like age and gender identity and sexual orientation and even race and income and more. Because I think we afford more latitude, more leeway to some people than others, depending on their different categories of identity. I mean, when we got together, I was curious and I would be lying if I said I wasn't influenced, insecure about the number of kills that you had before, I can assure you that it ha- I don't care in the least over the last however many years. Like, it did take me a little bit of time to get over. Were you concerned about the three kills that I had before? <laughs> <laughs> I was number three, Two of which I? were my hands. Because, no. <laughs> I mean, it's it's masturbation May, right? So, you know. Lefty, righty, Lefty, and Jess. Righty, yeah, Pamela Henderson. Mm. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I think that curiosity is normal, but we have to kind of, when we do feel judgment, we don't also have to judge ourselves, right? We have to stop and say, okay, so why do I feel this? Like, where does this come from? What do I want to do with it, right? And um, yeah, I think it really is important to think about all these components of identity because we do afford, you know, men having more partners, we see it as acceptable. Um, Older people, perhaps, right? If you're 20 versus 40, just because over time, if you are a serial monogamist, you're going to have more partners. Um, are there stereotypes around, you know, who has multiple partners, around sexual identity, around gender identity, sorry, sexual orientation, around race? All of these things, I think, are important to think about. So, um, yeah, I hope you're able to examine that. All right, let's, do we have time? We have time for one more before Shamika joins us. This person says, I'm a 22-year-old woman. I like to perform oral sex but feel super uncomfortable and nervous when people do it on me and don't really feel any stimulation or pleasure from it. Is this normal? Does it happen because I'm nervous or because maybe I've only met guys who are not good at it? (laughs) So it could be any of the above. So I I first want to say that some people don't love oral sex. So I think you want to think about Are you uncomfortable because it doesn't feel good and you feel pressure to enjoy it? Is the nervousness coming from the fact that you just don't like it or is it the other way around, right? Are you nervous so you don't like it or you don't like it so you get nervous? Um, Are you uncomfortable with the act itself? Are you uncomfortable with your body? You know, what messages were you sent about your body? If you simply don't like it, don't do it. You know, there are people who don't like a shoulder rub. I always think about feet. 
So I love my feet rubbed. I think you also like your feet rubbed. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. But it costs extra because your feet are too <laughs> big. Because my feet are huge, yeah. But some people don't like having their feet rubbed. And it's not because they have a hang up about their feet. It's because they know their body and they know they're not into it. So that's perfectly, you know, that's that's possible in your case. Now, if you're uncomfortable receiving pleasure or feeling, you know, not great about your body, there are different things you can do. So maybe you need to practice receiving pleasure. Like maybe you need to think about, you know, in other areas of sex, do you know how to be a taker? Do you know how to touch yourself? Uh, You know, many sexual issues can be addressed by simply tuning into what feels good in your body, right? Practicing mindfulness, letting go, focusing on pleasure instead of performance, and not worrying about well, you know, 76% of women orgasm from this specific act, therefore I must too. If you're not into it, you're not into it. You're the expert in your body. I'm just laughing because you made reference to being a taker. What? What? You're a taker. (laughs) At times I am a taker. Hang on, with oral, you're more of a taker than me. Yeah, and then we'll be having sex and and I swear you're just like, I don't even care what you're doing. It's my turn, 100%. (laughs) And then when you're done, you're just like, still my turn. (laughs) Still my turn. I just want to sleep, man. And then, yeah, and then you're like, just get, just go away for a bit. Just go away. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm definitely. I admit to being a taker, but I, I will admit also that uh, I'm not always in the mood for oral. Like I have to be in a certain comfort zone to really enjoy it. So that's that's something too. And so it's not this sexual pleasure, or you know, I'm not sure I love the word, but I, I think it encompasses it. Sexual empowerment isn't a destination. It's not a place you arrive at, right? Sometimes you feel really good about asking for pleasure and receiving pleasure and indulging in pleasure and other days you don't. So it's something I think, I don't know, for me at least, I'm always working on it. Uh, Before we get more into that, enough of us. (laughs) Let's get to our guest today, Dr. Shamika Thorpe, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Kentucky in counseling psychology. Her research focuses on the sexual well-being of black women utilizing sex positive and intimate justice frameworks. Dr. Thorpe co-founded the Minority Sex Report, an award-winning platform designed to provide representation and sexuality education to Black and Native American women, and she facilitates workshops for health educators and medical providers nationwide. She also serves on the editorial board for the American Journal of Sexuality Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Shamika. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. We usually run into each other at sexuality conferences, but it's been a while, huh? Yeah, it has been, unfortunately, right? That's the way I travel, so. I know, I know, I know. I think people think that I'm always jet-setting, but it's actually probably 90% work. Work that I will never, ever complain about because I cannot wait to get back to it. Now, you must be missing the conferences because you've been doing so much research on sex, on pain, on orgasm, and... I love your Instagram, Dr. Shamika. Folks should make sure they follow. Uh, I was reading about the orgasm gap study that you looked at across the lifespan for black women because so many of us have heard about the orgasm gap, right? We had that 2016 study from the Archives of Sexual Behavior that looked at over 50,000 adults in the States of all sexual orientations. And 95% of hetero men say that they usually are always orgasm during sex compared to 65% of hetero women. But as we know, oftentimes there are groups that are excluded 
or really kind of minority representation in these studies. And so you're looking specifically at black women. And I thought the data was really interesting. So can you walk us through the orgasm gap for black women and help us to identify some of the patterns that are really remarkable and also... I don't know, for me, very promising. Yeah, yeah. So recently, um, I did a study with Dr. Ashley Towns, as well as Twinette Palmer, Brittany Wright, and Dr. Debbie Herbinick. Um, And we looked at solely just Black women, right? Like, there's not a lot of research on Black women in a sex-positive way. And so one thing that we really wanted to explore is kind of the orgasm gap across age cohort. Um, And one thing that really stood out is that for 18 to 24 year olds, they had the largest gap. So in this sample of primarily heterosexual black women, 86.9% said that their partner orgasm at their last sexual encounter versus 53.4% saying that they had an orgasm. And so that's a huge gap. And so part of that could be just like communication, or maybe they don't feel comfortable communicating with their partners. At first, we thought it might be something related to like relationship status, or maybe that's more casual sex, right? Because they're younger, but they even reported that, you know, these are people that they knew. So maybe like a friend friend with benefits or something like that. And then as we see, as Black women get older, the gap kind of closes, right? Which is perfect and exciting. Um, So I remember when I made the social media post, everyone was like, shout out baby boomers. Like (laughs) we're doing our job. Mom and dad, mom and dad. (laughs) So the 60 to 69 year old, 65, I mean, 75.5% said that their partner had an orgasm versus 73.6% saying that they had an orgasm, which is really close, right? Like it's really good that that's occurring. And And one thing that I always like to say is I know that, you know, orgasms don't necessarily equate pleasure and pleasure doesn't necessarily equate orgasms. But it's really important that we try to close the orgasm gap throughout the lifespan and seeing that that's that that's happening later on in life is really crucial. And just like it made made me happy. Right. To see that. But we definitely have some work to do with the younger age groups to kind of close that gap. So what do you think 60 year olds are doing differently? I think they're just not faking it. <laughs> you know, I feel like part of it is they're not faking it. They may have been with this partner longer, so they feel more comfortable advocating for what they want with that partner. It could be just like knowledge, like knowing your body more by that time, you know? And so you're able to communicate with your partner about what you want, what makes you orgasm, um, and just care. You know, that's one thing that pops up a lot too. So like caring about each other's needs and pleasure. And what about this feeling of of being entitled to pleasure? Do you think that it takes many of us longer to come into that? So I was with a group of women yesterday, and they were talking about how difficult it is for them to tell their partners what they want. I would say their average age was probably about 50. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that when they look at their children, they're much, you know, their teenage children, they're much better at asserting themselves. Uh, How much of this do you think comes down to taking a while to come into our own in the sense of saying, you know what, this is for me too. This is, you know, I deserve pleasure. And there's all the layers of, you know, shame or negative messaging or gender-based messaging there. Yeah, I was just getting ready to say that. I was like, I think some of it too is shame. Because um, with Dr., so I worked with Dr. Uh, Candace Hargons and she recently did the big sex study. And we saw in her study that it was a sample of all Black 
um, people of all sexual orientations, gender identities. And we saw that most people believe that they were worthy of pleasure. So I think it's definitely some of these underlying pieces, where it's more of like shame or not knowing how to communicate or fear of how their partner will, will respond. Um, I think that's more of it than not believing that they're not worthy or entitled to it. It's just how do you access it, I think is the issue. And so has, in your research, have you looked at how people relinquish shame or what are the correlates of shame? Yeah. Uh, well, my study primarily is in the South. So in the South, one of the biggest, you know, correlates of shame is religion. Um, so that's one um, thing that really pops up. I think one thing that also helps is communicating with friends. So we see a lot of people um, in our study talked about how when they went to college, that was their time of exploration and freedom. And then I often think about, okay, well, what if people don't want to go to college or they don't have the luxury to go to college? Where do they get that opportunity to have that exploration and that freedom? And so I think it's having these open and honest conversations about you know, sexual pleasure, about orgasm, and even about pain that kind of relinquishes some of that. That's so interesting, you know, the conversations with friends about sex. I can't say growing up, like in my teenage years, we didn't really talk about sex. There was a lot of teasing. Uh, there were definitely a lot of jokes that were rooted in shame. And then in university, I talked about sex a lot because I worked at a peer counseling center for sexuality. But we didn't talk about our own sex lives as much. And so, you know, if I go back to myself, I don't really talk about my personal sex life with my friends as much as I think people might assume I do because I work in this field. So how do you how do you open up those conversations where you actually get a little bit vulnerable and personal with regard to your own sex life with friends? Yeah. I think with my friends, it just comes naturally. <laughs> so I think with my friends, it just comes naturally. And that's something that we've always talked about. I think, you know, when I think about other Black women and things that they have said that's been helpful, it's just kind of like, social media posts and using those as an opportunity to talk. Um, so whether they see something that's trending on Twitter or they see something on Instagram or something like relevant that happened, it kind of takes away that pressure from it being solely focused on like, hey, this is something that happened to me versus like, hey, you see this happening? Let's talk about it. So I think that's one way to kind of ease into it and have those conversations. And I think once you start to do that, you'll realize the people in your circle who may be more open to having those conversations. I love that. I really think that popular culture and news are great opportunities for parents to talk to kids, for obviously friends to talk to friends, for partners to talk to partners, right? Because it's that third party. You're really talking about this other branch that isn't you, but there's this opportunity to learn so much. So you also study pain, and that's what you're here to talk about today. So you just published a pain and pleasure study that found that nearly it's 61% of black women reported experiencing sexual pain during sex, but just under half are telling their partners. Can you tell us a bit about the data that you uncovered? Yeah. So um, this pain and pleasure study. So how I got interested in this is I was on Facebook, right? And people were talking about pain for some reason, like pain from IUDs. They were talking about pain with sex. Black Twitter was going on about like sexual pain and, and beating it up. And I'm like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be beating anything up. <laughs> um, so, like, <laughs> so that's how I really got into that. And so what I really wanted to explore is like how prevalent is sexual pain among Black women? 
Um, and you already mentioned the numbers, but we see not only are they not communicating with their partners, they're also not communicating with their providers, but at the same time, their provider isn't asking. And so I did a survey, but I also did follow-up interviews. And in the follow-up interviews, that's one thing that Black women really said is, I wish my provider would ask me. Like my provider isn't having these conversations. They're not initiating it. It's not on their intake form like, hey, do you have you know, any type of sexual difficulties? And so they're not having these conversations with them because they don't feel comfortable or even like acknowledging like pelvic floor therapy and that it exists. Right. Like most of them didn't even know. I think it was, let's see, 63.7 percent didn't know what a pelvic floor therapy even existed. Yeah. And we've had multiple pelvic floor Mm -hmm. therapists on this program and. I learn so much every time. Like that's just an it's it's a newer field in the West. It seems, mm-hmm. um, it has been like many medical professions a very white dominated field, but we are seeing more people of color move into it. I'm curious about pain being dismissed among women and specifically among Black women because we do have a wealth of data showing that these biases and inaccurate stereotypes exist among medical professionals. There is a belief that Black people can handle more pain, not only in the research with regard to what they express, but also in the way they prescribe or use interactions and treatments. So, you know, young kids, for example, with pain after an appendectomy, we know that if you are Black, these children who experience and express the same amount of pain, if you're Black, you're less likely to get some sort of intervention like pain medications. So, do they talk about this? Is this what do we do about this? Where do we even begin? Yeah. So I think part of it is as black women, we have to know how to advocate for ourselves and, you know, definitely choose doctors that are going to listen to us. And I think sometimes that's hard because of limitations with insurance, right? Or not having insurance. I think that's a bigger issue within itself. But you know, having a doctor not taking no for an answer. Right. If you know you have a a reoccurring issue or you're having sexual pain, that's not your normal, I guess, amount of pain that you would have, then definitely talking to a doctor about that. And, you know, one thing that really popped up in interviews is like some women were like, I had to move from doctor to doctor in order for someone to listen to me. And we shouldn't have to. And that shouldn't have to be the case. But in order to be treated, sometimes it is. Um, You know, I even asked, well, what did the doctor tell you to do? And the doctor, they were like, oh, my doctor just kind of brushed it off. Like, oh, no, it's fine. It's okay." Or, you know, even asking, hey, something as simple. Did your doctor tell you to use lube? And they were like, no. Like everyone said their doctor didn't tell them to use lube. And I'm like, well, what is missing here? Like lube is great. You know, like we we need to have even conversations about lube, I think is a different thing. So doing our own research, which I think black women are constantly doing anyway about the medical health care, you know, I think also advocating for yourself and having doctors that are willing to listen and maybe having doctors who even know what pelvic floor therapy is, because I think that might be an issue within itself. Like maybe they're not educated on what pelvic floor therapy is and how it can even help their um, patients. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Now, so what are women who are experiencing pain during sex, what are they doing if only 50% are talking to their partner, if, you know, fewer than 40% are talking to their medical practitioners, how are they coping? Um, So some of them mentioned, you know, trying different positions. So that's one thing that they've done. Some mentioned just trying to stop having sex. Like they feel pain. They just try to stop, you know, having it. 
I think the most common theme was just like grinning and bearing it, which is sad, right? Like, you know, I, I want my partner to be pleased. It's going to be painful, feeling kind of like hopeless, like there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just going to sit here and have sex anyway. And so that's, you know, an issue within itself because it's not putting their pleasure first. They kind of feel like helpless in the situation, but they don't feel comfortable talking to their partners. And one of the conversations about like, you know, well, why not is because they felt like their partner might get angry or their partner might retaliate or their partner would be upset that, you know, sex had to end or that there was nothing that their partner could do anyway. And I remember seeing a post about like, have sex with people who care about you. And I think that post really resonated with this study because it seems like you know the partners that they are having sex with don't necessarily care in that way and so when i'm talking about women who expected retaliation these were from women that were heterosexual but the women in my sample that were not heterosexual so that were queer that were bisexual pansexual or lesbian they didn't report that same type of fear and so even what that means you know they were free to have more conversations with their partner and i think that's where you know gender dynamics and come into play so where do we even begin in terms of helping people to communicate like what what's next do you want to do a study on the language that works how do how do we begin that conversation if we're afraid that our partner is going to respond negatively yeah so um we've actually talked about that in my lab, so I have three doctoral students that I work with, Jasmine Jester, Natalie Malone, and Jordan Dogan, and we've talked about what would that look like? So I am currently within the counseling psychology department. So what would that look like to have a toolkit or to have something that people could have to initiate these conversations? And we think it's starting out, it looks like workshops. So doing workshops with Black women to talk about what those conversations could look like. What are some things that commonly come up or fears that come up when they want to have these conversations with their partner and provider? Um, I know Dr. Ashley Towns has done really good work on how to communicate and advocate for yourself as a Black woman when you go to your doctor. And so she has tons of research published on that. But, you know, really just having these workshops and these one-on-one safe spaces for people to kind of talk about their fears first so we can develop toolkits to help them with those conversations. I want to go back to what you were saying about the you know, the fear to have those conversations. Did you find in your studies that there's different, like as you get older, is there less fear in having those conversations about painful sex with people's partners? Um, I feel like most of that was reported by younger people. Um, That's not something that I saw as much with older people. And so that's one thing that really stood out too. And I think that's part of that communication and not knowing how to advocate for yourself piece. Uh, That piece around advocating with health practitioners, what do you suggest people do if their doctor is dismissive? Um, And I know that, of course, finding a new doctor is a great idea, but not always an option for geographical or insurance or just practical reasons. How do you respond when you say, oh, I'm having pain during sex? And they're like, oh, okay, how's your knee? Uh, Because there's there's all the layers of it's, it's sexuality, so they're uncomfortable with it. So the dismissal comes down to sex itself. People see sex as either superfluous as opposed to a piece of our quality of life. We know that women's pain is tends to be ignored. We know that black women's and black people's pain overall tends to be ignored. So when your doctor ignores what you're saying or dismisses what you're saying, what can you do? How can you respond? How, how can you bring it back? Yeah, I think one thing is I always say like going to the doctor's office with a list 
that's something that I even do. So like when I'm thinking about things, I want to talk to my doctor about, I make a list, like I need to talk about this, 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 and this, and making sure you don't leave until you talk about all those things, right? Like you are the patient. This is your time just as much as it's their time. So, you know, talk about the things and address the needs that you have. I think when they're more dismissive in that way, you can maybe ask within that doctor's office to switch to a different physician if you feel like it's something that you're constantly experiencing. One thing that I think is helpful, too, is using the nurses, right? So a lot of times people feel more comfortable talking to the nurses that are kind of, you know, prepping you and, and doing your, you know, initial vitals and things like that. So check checking in with them, talking to them about concerns um, and really expressing that. And sometimes they give good, more feedback actually than doctors do. So I think that's one thing. And then also just circling back, like not being afraid to say, no, I want to talk about this. And I think, you know, recognizing that we know our bodies best and we know what we're experiencing. And so, yes, this person has a medical degree, but at the same time, you have to advocate for yourself and be like, no, I don't want to talk about my knee right now. Like, I want to talk about this. This is why I'm here. This is what's most of, you know, of critical importance to me. I really appreciate that. You know, there's really this, what I'm hearing is breaking down hierarchies. So hierarchies related to yes, gender, yes, race, and also roles, right? We talk about this with therapists all the time, that you have a right to walk into your therapy session and decide what you want to talk about. I tell people, I do that with my therapist. I write down, I mean, I have a very supportive therapist. Um, who, she doesn't choose what I talk about, but I know that people will complain that a therapist gets hung up on one thing. Mm -hmm. So you can go in there with your list of things. I really, I really appreciate that. And that reminder that you know what's happening in your body. Yeah. And then one thing that I really saw pop up too is, you know, I asked them, do they think that the race of their doctor, the race and gender of their doctor influences their communication with them? And a lot of them said, yes, like not having a person that looked like them definitely influenced whether they were willing to communicate with them. But others said no. So it depended on the population that they served. So, you know, one woman had a white male doctor and she was like, I'm comfortable talking to him because he sees college students all day. So I know he's having to talk about sexual health issues anyway, um, you know, it's a kind of the population that they serve. And then there was also this age piece where, you know, if they had doctors that were older, if they were younger women, they had doctors that were older around their parents' age, they felt uncomfortable talking to them. Um, so it's like many factors that come into play with that. So I see, you know, systemic and policy implications drawn from your research around, you know, the medical system and training for doctors and liaison, liaising between, say, pelvic floor therapists and other health professionals. Uh, you know, for folks listening to the podcast, maybe they are in a role where they can help enact that change, but maybe uh, they're just thinking about how they can use this advice for themselves. So any final words on how to speak up for yourself, how to communicate with your partner, even when you're feeling nervous, even when you're fearful that you're not going to get a positive response? Yeah, I think what's really helpful is having another person that is your person that you can talk to about these things, right? So for instance, with me, that'll be my best friend. So if I feel nervous talking about my partner about something, kind of, you know, discussing it with them first. So I know that if something were to go wrong, I have somewhere else I can go and talk about it. And so figuring, you know, who that backup, figuring out who that backup person is may be helpful for you. Um, and just realizing and, you know, recognizing that you are worthy of pleasure and you have to speak up for yourself in order, you know, to get the pleasure that you want and, you know, to have pain-free sex. I love it. Thank you so much. Now, what's next? What's next on the research docket? Because you do, I feel like every time I'm on your Instagram, you're publishing a new study. That's what it feels like for me, too. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, we just finished the pain and pleasure study. So we're in the process of writing up papers for that um, because you know, in academia, you have to write for journals. So we're in the process of doing that and still doing workshops. I don't know. There's a lot of new things I want to explore. So my research typically focuses on the sexual well-being of Black women across their lifespan. And so I know we need more research on uh, lesbian, queer, bisexual, and pansexual women. So that's an area that I would like to explore. Um, I've really been leaning more into kind of like LARC promotion among Black adolescents and what that looks like and how our generational messages influence whether we decide to get an IUD or not. Um, so just tons of opportunities and places we can go. So we'll see. Thank you so much. Can you let us know where we can follow and find your work? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Shamika and my website will be launching very soon and it will be drshamika.com. Thank you so much. Love chatting with you. Yes, thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. Please do not forget to check out Femtasy's promo offer if you're looking to explore fantasies or boost your libido or get into that flow state so that you can get out of your head and into the moment. Their short erotic stories are just the thing and they're at femtasy.com linked on my website and my IG. And by the way, if you are shopping for goodies to go along with your private play, either solo or partnered, adamandeve.com is still offering 50% off almost any item they offer, plus free shipping and some extra freebies, including a sexy movie, with code Dr. Jess, D-R-J-E-S-S. So we've got our audio covered for me with Femtasy, and of course, our physical covered with adamandeve.com. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.